it's so hard. Yeah, and I, I, I think that's that's the the desire for me to do this podcast because I I hated that I felt so alone in in the depths mm. of my burnout and you know really feeling torn with feeling like I'm abandoning clients, I'm abandoning this role and my mm. mission on this earth, which I felt like it was. Today on the podcast, I have Judy Hu, a licensed mental health counselor turned boundary coach. She provides short-term intensive boundary healing and coaching for adults, couples, and groups. During this discussion today, we discussed how boundary coaching can help therapists and clients set and enforce their boundaries, which is essential for preventing and healing from burnout. So we also talk about how to prevent therapist burnout, We talk a little bit about Judy's concept of boundary coaching, and we do a little deep dive into how therapists struggle with boundaries and what we can do to help ourselves in these situations. Take a listen. This is the Finding Joy After Burnout podcast, a podcast for therapists and mental health professionals. Together, we unravel burnout and find our road back to joy. Here's your host, Dr. Jen Blanchett. Hello, Judy, who welcome to the Joy After Burnout podcast. It's so great to have you. How are you doing? I am so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Yes. And so I know you from a group with Annie Schusler, who I also interviewed, will be on the podcast. It might release before now. Who knows? It's like weird podcasting time of when actual time is. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, time has no meaning for me anyway, so it's... (laughs) At the time of this recording, it's it's September 2023. So there we are, right? Mm-hmm. At any rate, I'm going to kick it, kick it off to you and just have you share your story. So when you first approached me about my, my burnout story, I was like, which one? Because I have many. <laughs> and so I, I'm going to give it as context. So I did a talk to my kids' fifth grade class um, about my career as a therapist But what I first started saying was, hey, I'm here because I am a failure, which then Mm -hmm. like totally sparked all this interest. All the eyes are on me, you know, from the classroom. And I'm like, I grew up thinking I was going to be a high school English teacher. And I did that and I failed miserably because I had no idea that I had ADHD. So I was Mm -hmm. staying up all night and I couldn't figure out lesson plans. And I was berating myself about being incompetent. And then I landed in marketing. And I did that really well. And I did it so well that I also stopped taking care of myself. So then I landed in being a therapist because there was a calling for me to help people. That's why I wanted to teach because I wanted to to help um, younger folks feel less lonely because that's how I felt when I was growing up. So therapy felt like the right thing. And just like teaching, I burnt out because the way that I was taught to do therapy and the way that my nervous system was making me do therapy was to save people. And that's not my job. Um, and embedded in the, the medical model is this 
this way of stigmatizing folks and symptom management that I was really focused on. So if my clients did well, then I felt good about myself. And if my clients didn't do well, I felt lousy about myself. So that really led me to work in a way that burned out my body. And I was not joyful. I felt really obligated and burdened. And now, what's my fourth iteration? Oh, so back to the story. I tell the kids the story because I'm like, you know, the average times that people will change careers is three. Three times. And they're like, what? And I'm like, yes. So when people ask you what you're going to do when you grow up, they're just asking because that's what they learned to ask. I'm going to bet you money that those grownups who ask you that question don't even know what they enjoy doing. And so I, t- I tell those, I told those kids and I tell my clients still, don't figure out what you're like, how to succeed in certain things, figure out who you are and then follow the breadcrumbs. And so now my fourth iteration is I'm a boundary coach. Um, I invented the name because it, it resonated for me, but basically I'm a life coach for folks who have not learned how to set boundaries with themselves and with other people because their boundaries were crossed in childhood. And so I focus on their boundary healing and I do not look at them, nor do I allow them to look at themselves as broken in any way. Um, we look at what happened to them, the truth of it, how they internalized it, and then put it in the context of society. And so that's what I'm doing now. And it's so much more fun because I'm sitting in the seat of kind of like a sounding board with a lens of historian mm-hmm. and trauma therapist, right? To understand like, oh, this is maybe how you perceived what happened as about you. What about this? And so we collaborate and just correct their history, their narrative about themselves because they're the expert in their lives. And so I just remind them that they're driving their bus. Like, where do they want to go? And that, that's what I'm doing now. And it's, it's so much more rewarding. <laughs> yeah, say more about maybe your shift between moving from therapist to boundary coach. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe why that's rewarding or, or what, what's happening now that wasn't happening before. Well, I think it coincides with me also being a mom. So mothers in our society are taught to be selfless and martyrs and do everything and do everything perfectly, including writing the note and the sandwich box that has like a, you know, well-rounded meal that the kids eat all of it, blah, 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 right? You're nodding. <laughs> so I know you understand. <laughs> and um, so I said, how yes. I was- it's a knowing, it's a knowing nod and sigh and laugh. Exactly. Right. Because it's impossible. Yes. It's impossible. And so how I took on the therapist hat was to heal people as if I'm some like guru, you know, or, and I, I mean, I can't even keep my kitchen clean, you know? And so it started to feel inauthentic of me sitting and doing therapy with people when I was struggling so deeply myself. And so the shift to boundary coaching was really joining them where they're at, normalizing the struggle as part of life, because I am in it too. And I'm also having the wide range of emotions because for me, living an authentic life means feeling all of the feelings. It's not happiness all the time. Right. It's about just feeling resonance and 
presence wherever I am at and whoever I'm with. Um, and so it just feels a lot lighter because I'm not carrying their burdens for them because they're not capable. That's kind of how I learned therapy was I have to help them with their healing. I have to do it for them. And that's actually not the case. It's, it's how I, how I learned about therapy. And I, and this could be different for other folks is it's a codependent model Mm -hmm. as like therapist is savior kind of, you know, like, oh, I'm not going to really work on, I'm not going to process this until I get to my therapist. Right. As if the therapist is the expert on what actually happened to you. I'm like, no, your body is the expert on what's happened to you. It's about learning how to be in tune to your body and just be aligned to that. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah, I'm thinking of of uh, where along the way do we internalize that we're we need to save our clients because I feel the same way. I don't feel like anyone ever in school told me save your clients, right? But I felt this pressure for for them to be healed. And so then I take, I took that pressure on as well. Like mm-hmm. when I would sit in front of a client who had just horrific developmental mm-hmm. trauma and felt like, what technique or what thing am I not, am I doing wrong? Like, why can't this person get better? And I think I t- took that on us as a personal failure as well mm-hmm. when I couldn't help that client get better. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they got worse. Mm-hmm. And then, I'm trying harder and I am trying harder. Right. And spinning my wheels. Right. And so for me, uh, the push to heal, quote unquote, my client was the push to be loved by my mother. Mm. So I did therapy as either my wounded child or my adaptive teen. So this is the lens that I use. It's like a, a modified internal family systems that I use with my clients now is there was this drive for me that if I could make my client happy, then I was good and lovable. And so for me, that drive started in a very young childhood of if I could make my mom happy, Mm -hmm. then I would be lovable to her. I would not be a burden to her. So that was my drive of saving. Um, I think it, it coincided pretty well to society's, um, I'm going to say grooming because I'm in this like <laughs> phase right now. Um, <laughs> this, yeah, I think it is grooming of, of young girls to be people pleasers and to just, you know, be quiet and be helpful and just do what they're supposed to and, you know, smile and be pretty. Um, it really fit with how I felt in my family where I was just supposed to be helpful. Yeah. And not have any demands or wants for myself. Yeah. I mean, it, it, that human given giver syndrome, you know, comes up for me. And I often, you know, I sometimes think back. So I like to watch like these, uh, you know, like 1800s, like dramas and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I think about historically the role of women, you know, what mm-hmm. the role is and how we, you know, we've come so far, but there's still those internalized messages that are, are that still remain. Mm-hmm. And we even those stories from our grandparents. Well, mm-hmm. it, I always had dinner on the table and I always did X, Y, and Z. So then we internalized that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But so here's the context, right? So the historian and trauma informed 
therapist part is like, okay, so they had to do that because if they didn't, then they wouldn't have a husband who would then be able to provide for them. So it was Mm -hmm. that pick me, like the requirement of being serving in that way was to secure their financial and physical safety. So that's decontextualized property. We couldn't have bank accounts, bank accounts. Exactly. You know, yeah. So, I mean, it makes sense that that is internalized, that mm-hmm. intergenerational kind of perspective for women, which most therapists tend to be women. So I think mm-hmm. thinking of that has, has been one of my thoughts of, of why we come into these roles and that these roles tend to be also underpaid and undervalued in mm-hmm. our society, which is a whole nother conversation. <laughs> Well, see, so, so I'm, I'm constantly like looking at it, like what's the decontextualized trauma here, right? So I just gave the example of my decontextualized trauma that pushed me into, you know, this wanting to help people so they didn't feel lonely role. My decontextualized trauma was my, my trauma history with my mother, right? So, and then we just talked about, you know, getting food on the table at a certain time. Well, that decontextualized trauma is patriarchy. Yeah. Right. So the decontextualized trauma for why are so many women in this? Why are so many women burning out? Why is it such a low paid job? The context of that is capitalism. Yeah. Okay. The push for productivity versus the push of humanity. Right. Mm. So how I, it was really hard for me to stop taking insurance. I felt so much guilt. Yes. But what I realized was, Basically, I was trying to write my notes to convince the insurance to reimburse me for my services with my client until they were well enough to go back to work. So it wasn't for their wholeness and their healing. It was so they could be productive was was kind of the ethics part of it for me. I'm like, actually, this doesn't this doesn't serve me. Cause I had to work so many hours to try to make ends meet, you know, and it didn't work for my clients because I had to justify their treatment, which is basically justify their diagnosis and disorder. Yeah. And then like labeling and mm-hmm. the whole stigma that comes along with, with that as well. Mm-hmm. 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 And can I just jump in here? Cause I'm in go, this like, go. why is it so low paid? I mean, I think there are male clinicians who don't have such an issue with maybe charging more or I don't know. So that that's an aside. Let me, let me go back to what I was actually trying to say, which is I grew up thinking that you weren't supposed to talk about money. Right. Right. Especially when I was trying to negotiate new salaries or all this other stuff. Like you don't, I think that was taught to us by the, the upper echelons who make an obscene amount of money so that they can maintain power, right. And privilege by us not communicating with each other and going, wait, you're a clinician. You work 20 hours. You, you see 20 clients a week and you're only making what? Because yeah. of insurance, right? Like if we started to talk to each other, including with our clients to understand that this labor is killing us too, right? I think there would be a lot more change happening, including for, for clients who also are trying to make ends meet and subtly like mad at us because we're no longer accepting insurance. 
right? I had to do a lot of work with my clients around that. Yeah. I, before I closed my practice, I actually closed my practice this year. I went off panel slowly mm-hmm. due, due to a lot of this, you know, I kind mm-hmm. of finally actually looked at my numbers. So I, I came into private practice out of desperation mm-hmm. and burnout from mm-hmm. more caregiving. So having a baby who had heart surgery and not, mm-hmm. I, I couldn't go back to working 30 hours a week at my agency job. I just, mm-hmm. there's no way I could do it. Mm-hmm. Coming into private practice, I was like, I don't know. I just have to make it work mm-hmm. because I have to be there for my baby too. So mm-hmm. those dual <laughs> those dual caregiving roles that we often at the straddle right. in our but anyway, closing the practice, I think this time was I think that tension for me was was that guilt I felt for those clients who had stayed with me for years. And mm-hmm. then I'm telling them I can't do this because when I actually looked at those numbers, mm-hmm. which took me several years into practice, mm-hmm. and I added it up and I took home maybe 40 or 50 K. That's what I made on, that's what I made on postdoc. Yes. And, um, before I was licensed even, Mm -hmm. and, um, it just struck me like I could do so many things for this amount of money. And so the labor, the, the idea between the emotional nature of my labor, which was causing me mental health symptoms, causing me physical health ailments. 100%. Yes. I, I, I just did not see how that, summed up in mm-hmm. my life. Because mm-hmm. let me just jump in, if I oh. may, Jen. The 45 doesn't include sick time, doesn't include vacation pay, doesn't include health insurance, doesn't include disability, doesn't include, right? No, no. And thank God, I will state my privilege that I did have a partner that was there and had some of those things, but I did not get my vacation pay. Most so Exactly, so yes. mm-hmm. exactly. So going back to the trauma of patriarchy decontextualize. That's what kept me in my very miserable marriage for so long. Mm. Right. Because I could not figure out how I could do this work and support my children and myself on just my salary. Right. I felt I could do it when I was married and partnered with someone who thankfully had a really well-paying job. Right. And didn't have the burdens of childcare either, right? Because right. it was very traditional patriarchal figure. And so it took me a long time to try to figure out how am I going to make this work so that I can be free and live the life that I want to versus learn to tolerate, which is our societal adaptation to collective trauma. It's just learning to just adapt around it. Yeah. Mm, so well stated. It's like a mic drop right there. (laughs) It's through a lot of tears and a lot of grief that I came to this and a lot of shedding of relationships to get Mm -hmm. to this place too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's so hard. Yeah. And I, I, I think that's, that's the, the desire for me to do this podcast because I, I hated that I felt so alone in, in the depths Mm. of my burnout and Feeling, feeling torn with feeling like I'm abandoning clients. I'm abandoning this role and my mm. mission on this earth, which I felt like it was. That's, you know, even from my kind of religious tradition, I almost saw it like as like, oh, this was my mission in some ways, um, or faith belief, I would say, not religious tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to like have that kind of reckon together and think like, 
So if this isn't my mission, like, what is this? So it was like a big existential crisis in the midst of the mm-hmm. pandemic, which many of us had. Right, right. And but, so going back that we have to get to these, these, the ends of the rope, you know, to, to make these realizations and make this change for us, because I know what that felt like for me. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like for you, it was a similar, like, and like very end and extension of yourself to get there, to make some of these conclusions. Yes, absolutely. And to be a hundred percent honest, I would have it no other way. There's no other way that I would have made the change that I needed to without being completely at the end of my rope and desperate. Yeah, same. And I think that's a lot of the case for a lot of our clients, right? And so Mm -hmm. I want to go back to a word that you used, abandon your clients. You know, you can't abandon your clients because they're adults. Yeah. Right? So right there, there's a misalignment in roles. Right. That's Definitely. literally how I stayed in my agency job for so long because I worked with folks who were post adoption counseling. So it was like serious abandonment issues, you know, and I was like not sleeping. I was waking up suicidal. Like it was really, really stressful, mm. you know? Yeah. And it was like, is it my life that I try to take care of or theirs? And so now weaving in the, the faith you know, your mission is to, to help people. I want to just go, I think your mission might be to live your life. Right. 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 And however iteration that is. Yeah. And I I think I definitely came to that with like the, um, the frustration and anger that was sitting at home because Mm. I would, I didn't have space for me. Mm Mm-hmm anymore like especially in the pandemic it was caring for someone online Mm -hmm. through zoom or when we went back in person and then caring for my children at home with the little support Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and so the anger rather than about you is looking at it into the context of our societal structures do not provide enough support for parents no right but we take it on, especially women, right? Yeah. Oh, it's me. I'm not working hard enough. Oh, it's me. I'm not organized enough. Oh, it's me. I'm not driven enough. Oh, it's me. I'm not patient enough, right? And it's not that. It's never we are the problem. It's these symptoms that are coming up are breadcrumbs to something bigger. Yeah, I like your I like your term of breadcrumbs, you know, like figuring out who you were who you are rather, and then mm-hmm. following the breadcrumbs. And mm-hmm. I don't, I never listened to that for myself either. Mm-hmm. That I probably wasn't, my temperament doesn't really fit with therapy very well. Hey therapist, I wanted to let you know about a free resource that I've developed for you. Introducing the Before You Quit guide. This is the free resource I wish I had when I was in the throes of burnout. So it's going to include focused journal props on areas of struggle and burnout in clinical practice, identification of depleting experiences in your practice and in your life. And then we'll hopefully identify some actionable items for change if you're feeling depleted in your role. Please give yourself the gift of slowing down and assessing what's really going on with your career turmoil as a therapist. I know it can be confusing, isolating, 
and totally overwhelming. So grab your freebie. The the link for that is in the show notes. Thanks. You know, I I like Same to more. talk. Yeah, because I I've in the roles, so I kind of dissected like looking at my my favorite roles as a professional had been in training, had mm-hmm. been in working in groups and systems, mm-hmm. and having more of a collaborative role. So me being in a room with one client at a time really mm. did not fit who I was. Mm-hmm which I really saw more as a collaborator and someone who comes alongside or a trainer or someone who helps support the person who's doing the service delivery or the work or Mm -hmm. whatever it is to help them Mm -hmm. in their role. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, I mean, that, that was one of the realizations I came to that I, it's like, I just kind of was like, okay, I've gone down this path for so long. It's more that sunk cost. Like I mm-hmm. have this dark school degree in psychology. I can make the most money doing therapy. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm going to do. But that collaborative model sounds like it can be like coaching. Yeah. Right. And I think me shifting the name of what I do to coaching shifted also the expectation of my clients. Right. So it's like, we're like, both of us are rolling up our sleeves and like leaning forward. Both of us are not one person leaning back on their chair and me leaning forward to try to get it out of them. You know, it was like, we're both in on this. Like I'm here to kind of coach and, and guide and mentor, but I'm not here to fix anything. You need to want that. I want to go back to a little bit. You Mm -hmm. you were saying like, you didn't look at the characteristics. So back to what I was saying to the fifth graders, right? I started that in the the interview. I told them, and I, and I hear this too in your story of what they need to do is figure out what they're good at and that they like. Not figure out what the end goal is, right? To make a certain amount of money or to be in this profession and fit into that box and go, oh, I like talking with kids. I like doing this thing. I like social media. I like technology. And then figure out who they are. Mm. And then from there, create a profession where that can happen. Right? Like I look back at all of my failures, quote unquote, I'm doing all of those things. My marketing career, my teaching career, I'm I'm now coaching, which is basically teaching, right? And my clinical role. And I figured out a way to actually marry and merge all of my gifts that I just naturally have in me being Judy to my created career. And I think if we were to teach our kids to listen to their bodies and to figure out what gifts they bring to the world and allow them to focus on that rather than teach to the test, we wouldn't have as many needs for therapy. Right. Because people would actually be doing something they enjoy versus something that they're miserable at, but need to because it pays the bill. Yeah. And I think it makes a lot of sense. And I also, Mm -hmm. there's some therapists I meet that are, Mm -hmm. they are just therapists. Like I, they talk Mm -hmm. about it and they just, um, they can embody it. Mm -hmm. Um, Not that you can't have that skill as a therapist, but they need to stay in that role because that's, 
it suits them. Mm-hmm. But I feel like it's so hard for them because our structures and society mm. don't reward it. So also, how do we help those people that are aligned to be like a grade school teacher, like the English teacher or the therapist who wants to stay in therapy? Mm. That wasn't me, but mm-hmm. <laughs> who wants to stay in that? Because I feel like there's another layer of burnout that comes with like the organizational and institutional burnout that no matter what we do, that might happen. Mm-hmm. But I think so, if we align the temperament first, like you're saying, mm-hmm. that is best mm-hmm. so that they aren't jumping into something that really that it doesn't fit in their life. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Mm-hmm. And so what I'm hearing is for those who want to be a therapist, but the way that they're working is burning them out. What can we do to support them? Is that what I heard? Yeah. So I'm going to use a story. I worked with a client who was like, I got this microaggression from my supervisor and should I leave my job? And I was like, do you like your job? She's like, yeah, I love it. I'm like, does it pay the bills? She's like, yes, it's great compensation. And I'm like, then no, then you just got to like figure out how to strategize to deal with this other person. Right. Mm -hmm. So the same thing for these therapists who love being a therapist, but are just incredibly burnt out. Let's figure out why you're putting a hundred percent of yourself into this job. What are you avoiding looking at? Yeah. Are you over identifying with your clients and their struggle? Which from my story, I burned out of three jobs. If I didn't have that struggle, I would not be in this joyful place right now. Right? Yeah. We cannot remove the struggle from some of these clients because it's the fire that they need to forge something different. Mm -hmm. Right? And so it's, I think, for clinicians who want to stay in this field, it's, it's understanding what is the drive, what are they doing, and better understand ways that they can protect themselves emotionally and psychologically and work with clients in a way that is best for everybody. Yeah. And I think the support, you know, I I didn't realize how much of a silo I would be in in private practice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Whereas before, you know, on internship and postdoc, I had a lot of, I talked to people about my work every day. Mm -hmm. And that's a huge difference that I don't Mm -hmm. think we can fully know what that's going to be like Mm -hmm. until we're in it. Mm -hmm. And it would be pretty deliberate if we make that choice in private practice to be alone and isolated, even if you have like people that rent, you know, other space in in your Mm -hmm. space. Mm -hmm. To be really intentional about creating that community. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Like super peer supervision groups or, I mean, it's tricky because we have to keep all of the information confidential. So we can't come back and like, vent about work or process anything because it's, it's private information. So that is part of the tricky Mm -hmm. piece. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, we're wired to be social, we're social creatures. We're wired for connection. So it makes total sense that, you know, if we're in private practice and not connecting to our peers, that we're going to be burnt out because we're not having that cycle of like filling each other's cups hearing someone go, Jen, that was what you just shared. That was, sounds amazing what you did with your client, you know, and that would fill your cup versus just kind of thinking about all the things that you wish you had done differently. <laughs> like right. that's what I do. <laughs> yeah. And I think the nature of therapy too, because in other 
in other fields. Like when I go, I think of physical therapy sometimes because I go to mm. physical therapy often. I'm a tennis player for 30 years. Mm. And when I go there, they're they're often like in the same space, like treating their their patients together. So they're in the gym and they're mm-hmm. they're working out together and they're seeing each other and mm-hmm. they're seeing their patients get better mm-hmm. or not get better. Mm-hmm. And they can say like, oh, I really saw you struggle with, I'm just imagining what they talk about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're like, hey, I saw you struggling with Billy over here. Can you, maybe have you tried this or that or mm-hmm. X, Y, and Z? Or like, oh, they're really stressed out today. That would seem like that was a hard session mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. So there's there's more, able. there's more space to be seen mm-hmm. potentially. Whereas mm-hmm. we were licensed, we're in a closed door. So right. we're not often seen unless we're doing co-therapy. Right, right. And I think that's one of the, pulls for me to start my group coaching practice is that I noticed, so my, my niche is um, folks of color. So black indigenous people of color and LGBTQ. Um, And so my groups are healing boundaries for people who are um, marginalized generationally to kind of heal that. And so what I noticed in a lot of my one-on-ones was that they felt like they were all alone. Like no one else was struggling as much as them. So when I, when I led the groups where it was mostly BIPOC, all BIPOC, and now I'm opening it up for LGBTQ who are non-BIPOC, but deep on their anti-racist journey is they get to be in community with people who are also struggling. Right. And there's this amazing alchemy of sharing space with someone else who's a hundred percent responsible for their own life and their decisions. And then we're just journeying alongside of each other. And, and it's amazing. I feel so energized after those groups. It's, it's so fun. Yeah. That's great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the wonderful work you're doing. And I love, mm-hmm. I love seeing you on video, by the way, on uh, Instagram, your videos are the best. Thank you. It took a while. Oh my gosh. I hated it at first, but I'm glad I got here. Anytime. I think if you've been in therapy before, we're, we're kind of socialized to not share anything mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. social media. So the, there is a shift if you start to do that in some context, like I've mm-hmm. been doing with my podcast. Mm-hmm. It's hard to be visible. Mm-hmm. What's your natural response when you share your vulnerability or or show up in that way on the podcast? Uh, I think it's fine. I I think I have more of an issue with video if it's just me on video, but if I'm talking with, like I'm talking with you, it doesn't seem like that hard of a, Mm. hard of a, of a space to journey for me. Mm -hmm. But I think because this podcast is new and it's been a while that I've been marketing, it's feeling that's familiar, like, oh, am I going to be rejected? Am I going to be seen as... Like, why is she doing this? I mean, all the things, all the insecurities, all the um, mm-hmm. things come up mm-hmm. for me. But I, it tends to, as as I get going, I know it gets easier. Mm-hmm. And I, I start to care less and less about those things. Mm-hmm. And those those voices and those worries get smaller. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I, I mean, I hired a social media team to just teach me how to just upload. Cause I would, before when I was doing it, I would put something up and then I'd drop into my like, oh, is anyone going to like my video? You know, whereas they, because they didn't have this personal investment in it, they were able to upload and push me to make content. 
And so I basically used their nervous system until I could get regulated enough to do it on my own. Yeah, it's, so like again, co- that, it's like co-regulation for, for social media. 100%. I love it. <laughs> but wouldn't that be the same thing for your example with the PT work, right? It's like because you're in this room together doing similar things, struggling in similar ways, there's this co-regulation that happens because you're not yeah. doing it alone in a silo. It's a lot less lonely. And definitely, I mean, I think when we were in that mastermind together, a lot mm-hmm. of us were doing these visible, vulnerable things we hadn't done before. And it was the opposite of what we'd think to do mm-hmm. <laughs> in many mm-hmm. ways. Mm-hmm. But it was easier together because we we're all doing those things. Yeah. And then seeing someone like doing it that way and going, oh my God, I would never do it that way. But because we're seeing them do it, it's like a possibility now for us. Right. Right. That's, like I think that's the Heidi, other. Heidi uh, Saval or Saval. Oh, gosh, Saval. Yeah. Yeah. Very vulnerable. I mean, yes. with her own story. And so this is part of my own story. You know, this is mm-hmm. a lot of me more so than my last mm-hmm. podcast, which was on TBI. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot more of me. And so it's not like, ooh. Mm-hmm. And it's easier now that I'm not doing therapy, mm-hmm. I'd have to say. Mm-hmm. That, well, that's interesting because I've been sharing so much more vulnerable content around my childhood and, you know, the struggles of parenting and all this other stuff. And I feel like it's really allowed a lot of trust with my clients. Because I don't know, I think there's like this, like, I mean, of course I know. There's this, you know, the power differential of like putting a therapist on a pedestal. Right. Right. And I'm like, do you want to go see my kitchen? And I'll bring my clients to my kitchen and be like, my shit stinks too. Come on. Like, let's, we're all human here. And there's this like softening and, and like this ability to be like, oh, Judy's just like me. I'm a human being just trying to do this human right. experience. Right. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why I'm sharing more. And also, I think that is also like a missed opportunity for therapists too. I understand the need for, you know, confidentiality and allowing them to like project onto us. But I, I think there's, there's an opportunity for us to relook at the models in which we were trained to see if that's, if it's still uh, helpful. You know, because those models are based on white supremacy, patriarchy, capitalism. So it's good to relook at everything. Yeah. And fear. I mean, Mm -hmm. so much fear. I think, you know, even the ethics training is, you know, a lot of it is a CYA. Oh, you want a CYA, which most Mm -hmm. of us know what that is. Cover your ass. Mm -hmm. Because someone's going to get us. We're going to do something wrong. We're going to hurt our clients. And our board is going to come for our license and, and mm. all those, all those things that we were actually, people have actually said those things to me. Mm-hmm. So it's no wonder we are often very fearful as therapists mm-hmm. to do things, to change just mm-hmm. anything. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think I give, I give therapists who are starting this journey of, of changing whatever it is, either changing their practice, going to a private practice, leaving therapy, doing all the, whatever it is that you need to do. I just mm-hmm. give them so much credit and just commend their courage. Absolutely. Because it's absolutely courage, right? Making that, that leap of faith and not knowing how it's going to end up. Yeah. So part of me changing my, the part of the reason why I changed from being a therapist, taking insurance to being a boundary coach and, and paying out of pocket is I decided to leave my husband, mm-hmm. which required me to really make some 
look at my finances really carefully. But in doing that, I had so much more space for myself that I was able to write a book. I was able to rebrand myself. I was able to be present to my kids now because I had the space. Like so many, ch- and I got a puppy. She's in the back. <laughs> I mean, it was like, oh my God, I had no idea I would have that much energy um, after something that felt like such a hard decision to make. Mm-hmm. And so courage, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the book and share a little bit about it? Sure. Um, I, it was such a painful birthing of this book. It's called The Boundary Revolution, Decolonize Your Relationships and Discover a New Path to Joy. And it's basically identifying how I work with my clients. Um, and embedded in that is my own story along with my client's stories and just talking about the framework that I use in therapy. Um, because I, I just want more and more people to understand a different way of looking at themselves and their struggles to build some compassion in there along with accountability. Um, and so it just identifies how I work and then folks can try to practice that at home too. That's great. Mm-hmm. Is that wherever books are sold? I'm guessing it's on Amazon. Awesome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I can link that up um, yeah. in the show notes. That would be great. Thank you. Yeah. So what else are you putting out in the world that you might want to share with people, therapists or, or anyone? Um, I'm running my next group starting this October. I'm not sure when this is going to be live, but it's going to be October 5th. So every other Thursday night through the beginning of January, holidays are often hard. You know, I alluded to a challenging relationship with my mother. And so holidays are hard for me. And so the group is for folks of color and those who are um, in the LGBTQ community. And so we'll be journeying together that way. I'm doing a hybrid model of my group coaching now. So it's like, as I'm, I'm doing the live cohort, I'm recording it and then uploading it on Kajabi or my um, teaching site. And so folks can do that as self-guided. So it'll just be a, a course that folks can do and um, alongside or at a different time. So I'm just trying to be super creative and like try to use my energy for more joyful things too. So, yeah. What are, what are you, what are you, what's giving you energy? My puppy. (laughs) I have never, I've never been a pet owner and my Luna is just like, I don't know. She's just so joyful. I, it's, it's just so nice to come home and she's like, you know, when I'm like, no, do you have a pet? I, I do. Yeah. I have a 14 year old board. Well, he'd be 14 at the end of the month. So, oh God, he made me a mom. Like yes. this, this, this animal, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think he's straight from heaven. I really mm-hmm. do. Mm-hmm. And he just has like the soulful eyes of a cow. Oh, <laughs> he used to be my therapy dog. So he would come into you know, the office mm-hmm. with me when I was practicing mm-hmm. and um, my clients just loved him mm-hmm. and he's just so emotionally intelligent so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and it'll be hard whenever we do have to say goodbye but he's mm-hmm. um he's just been a gift mm-hmm. so i love i love pets and how they they help our lives i just mm-hmm. think they add so much oh absolutely i mean the co-regulation in and of itself i mean she's 
it's so interesting because I was writing my book when I decided to adopt Luna. And it was just like this whisper in my ear of like, you should adopt a dog. And I'm like, I'm in the middle of my first draft. Like, what the heck? And I heard about this puppy that needed a home who was calm and confident. And I was like, okay, why not? You know, in the first three weeks, I was like, this was in, that was my ADHD doing this. I can't do this book. And, and now she absolutely helped me finish the book. I mean, she was just this like constant well of joy and yeah, and love. Yeah. That's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We also have a bunny. So oh. he's the softest little thing. Mm-hmm. So you're hanging with your dog. You got your group coming out. Maybe we can <laughs> get this live for the launch mm-hmm. i would try my best so yeah. it, it might launch october 4th oh yeah so if that's the case that actually happened i did it <laughs> and don't don't push yourself Jen. like i tell all my clients and myself every day perfection is not the goal like you know just do what what is good don't do too mm-hmm. much yeah i i steal from the program progress Yes. Progress, not perfection. Mm-hmm. Progress over perfection. Now I mess it up. Anyways. Well, great. Well, I hope people will connect with you. Where is the best place to connect with you? So judyhuboundarycoach.com. So it's J-U-D-Y-H-U Boundary Coach. And that will get you to all my different spots. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for spending time with me. This was a fabulous conversation. And I think people are going to get so much out of it and want to reach out to you. Thank you so much, Jen. I really appreciate it. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Joy After Burnout podcast. Be the first to hear new episodes by following the podcast in your podcast player. This is an informational podcast only. Any information expressed by the host or guest is not a substitute for legal, medical, or financial advice.